Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Look, there are a boatload of research papers that demonstrate that poverty, simply not having enough money, is very bad for people. Poor people die younger after less healthy lives. Countless studies have shown that statistically poor children come into school performing less well than rich kids. Government programs like Head Start try to level the playing field for poor children. But what if there was a simpler way? What if giving poor families cash boosted the cognitive development of very young kids? That's the tantalizing possibility a new neuroscientific study of Cash Aid presents. We'll talk with one of the lead authors, and then we'll talk about San Quentin closing down its death row. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A clinical trial called Baby's First Years asked a simple question. Would giving poor mothers an infusion of cash each month, no strings attached, have an effect on their baby's brain development? There are years to go in the study, which has also been affected by the pandemic like everything else, but the study's team just published their first big results in the journal PNAS, and at a basic level, their findings are astounding. The children of women who got a substantial monthly stipend appeared to show brain activity that researchers generally associate with better cognitive development. Here to talk about the study is Dr. Kimberly Noble, professor of neuroscience and education at Columbia University and one of the study's principal investigators. Welcome, Dr. Noble. Thank you so much, Alexis. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Noble, why did you launch this study and who's involved? Sure. Well, this is a long-standing uh, collaboration going on nearly a decade now between a team of economists, policy experts, psychologists, and neuroscientists from uh, six universities across the U.S. And so the genesis of the study, which we call Baby's First Years, uh, comes from the fact that we've known for a very long time that children growing up facing uh, financial oppression and exclusion, growing up living in poverty, Uh, are at risk for a host of negative outcomes, everything from school achievement to lower likelihood of graduating from high school or college to poorer health in adulthood. Um, But there are plenty of people out there who would say, well, sure, poverty is associated with those outcomes, but poverty doesn't really cause those outcomes. It's Mm -hmm. all the things associated with poverty or even the choices that uh, parents make. Um, And regardless of where you sit on that question from an ideological perspective, from a scientific perspective, the best way to really answer that question is through a clinical trial. 
Now you might say, well, you can't randomize people to living in poverty or not living in poverty. Of course not. But what you can do is take a group of families who are living with low income and randomize them to different amounts of unconditional cash support. Hmm. So that's really the genesis of the study. Uh, so back in 20, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. Continue. Um, I was going to say, so back in uh, the spring of 2018, we began recruiting a thousand mothers living with low income uh, shortly after they gave birth, just a day or two after the birth of their children. We recruited them right there in the postpartum wards of the hospitals. Um, and we invited them to participate in a longitudinal study of child development and family life. And upon enrolling in the study, we invited them to also receive a monthly unconditional cash gift that they are free to spend however they like, no strings attached. Critically, though, we randomized the moms into one of two groups. So the group that we call the high cash gift group receives $333 a month. And the group that we call the low cash gift group receives $20 a month. How did you pick those levels? Yeah, so we chose those amounts very intentionally for a few reasons. Um, So first, work by my social science colleagues suggests that a difference of about $4,000 a year, which is what that amounts to, uh, has been associated with improved school achievement later in life, as well as some other uh, health and uh, employment outcomes later in life. So it was an amount that we thought would move the needle. And secondly, Uh, You know, when we began planning the study 10 years ago, of course, we had no idea that Build Back Better would be on the horizon and actively debated. But we did uh, think that at the time, that amount still held some policy relevance because $4,000 a year is similar in magnitude to other social services and benefits that low-income families um, often qualify for. How'd you fund all this to be able to give these sort of cash transfers? Uh, It was a long process. So um, we have some funding from the National Institutes of Health for the evaluation of the study, but being part of the federal government, they couldn't fund the cash transfers themselves directly. So Mm -hmm. we've been able to uh, partner with um, about two dozen private philanthropic organizations and foundations um, who together have funded the cash gifts. And those are all uh, listed on our website, Mm babiesfirstyears.com. So let's talk about how you measure your outcomes here. This is in the study that we're talking about here that was published recently in PNAS. This is measuring brain activity. Can you talk a little bit more about that scientific process? Absolutely. Uh, So, right. This is the first glimpse of findings from the study. We've got many more uh, aspects of what we're going to be looking at in the pipeline. But this first paper reports, as you mentioned, on infant brain activity after the families had received just one year of the monthly cash gifts. And so, you know, what is brain activity? Why do we care about it? Um, So we measure brain activity using a technique called electroencephalography or EEG. Um, And EEG essentially consists of a stretchy cap with discs called electrodes that you can think of uh, a lot like microphones that listen in to the brain activity of these infants. Um, Now, we're not mind readers. Of course, we're not able to measure what someone's actually (laughs) thinking, uh, but we are able to measure the speed of the brain's electrical signals. And so everybody has some slower paced brain activity and some faster faster paced brain activity, and we're able to measure the amounts of uh, brain activity at those different speeds. 
And we care about that for a few reasons. So first of all, we know that in childhood, as kids get older, they tend to show more fast-paced brain activity. And secondly, we know that, uh, again, in childhood, a number of studies now have suggested that in many cases, kids with more fast-paced brain activity go on to develop uh, higher skills in areas that we know are important for thinking and learning. And finally, there have been a few studies to suggest that kids uh, living in poverty or facing other forms of early adversity often tend to show less of that fast-paced brain activity compared to their peers. And so we reasoned that perhaps this poverty reduction intervention might reverse that pattern. Hmm. So specifically, we predicted that the infants of the moms in the high cash gift group would show more fast-paced brain activity than the infants of the moms in the low-cash gift group. And that's the evidence that we present in this paper, where the weight of the evidence suggests that, indeed, the infants of the moms in the high-cash gift group tend to show more fast-paced brain activity than the infants of the moms in the low-cash gift group. And, you know, were those results clear-cut and statistically significant and definitive, or were they... Uh, a, a little bit more mixed. Yeah, so I used that term, the weight of the evidence, very intentionally. So it's definitely not an airtight, clear-cut, you know, <laughs> pack up our bags and go home case. We have a lot left to learn. Um, and luckily, we are going to be continuing to learn from these families. We've got uh, plans to bring the families back as their children approach their fourth birthdays. Um, so we're going to be able to both measure brain activity again, but importantly, at that point, we'll also be able to measure um, cognition and behavior directly. Mm -hmm. What do you think the mechanism for that shift in brain activity that you've observed might be? That's a great question and one that's really at the top of our minds. Uh, so we've got quite a lot of work going on to try to understand exactly that. And um, we've, uh, collected data and are in the process of analyzing and uh, writing up data to look at things like differences in um, uh, parents' investments, meaning child-focused expenditures, the time that parents are spending with children, as mm -hmm. well as things like uh, family life, family stress, family relationships, to try to understand uh, what might be the pathways linking this cash infusion to children's outcomes. Yeah. Are there other studies about what effect cash transfers to mothers have had in, in other places? Um, yeah, there's a, quite a lot of work, particularly in developing countries, looking at both uh, unconditional cash transfers like ours, where uh, people are free to spend the money however they like, as well as conditional cash transfers, in which case um, there are conditions spent, uh, conditions either on how the money is spent or on um behaviors that people have to show in order to get the money. So for example, uh, attending school or taking children to the doctor. Yeah. And uh, there's really quite a bit of mounting evidence to suggest uh, that unconditional cash transfers can influence a number of different outcomes. Most of those studies, though, focus on adult outcomes, things like employment. Um, very few focus on children, and there are none that focus on early childhood 
uh, the way ours does. And yeah. one might think based on the remarkable sensitivity of the developing brain early in childhood, that early childhood might be a time period when children would be particularly sensitive to economic and financial resources in their families. Yeah. What does your work say about the panoply of alternative explanations for cognitive development in poor children? Um, so, you know, that really gets to this question of causality. So uh, as I mentioned, when we started, you know, there are plenty of people who would say, well, it's not income itself that's causing those differences. Uh, it's you know, the host of other things associated with income or with poverty or even people's choices. And by showing through a randomized control trial design that when we manipulate income, we see an impact on children that suggests that income may in and of itself play a causal role. We're talking about the baby's first year study that shows cash aid to low income mothers increases brain activity in their babies and what that could mean for social policy going forward. I'm talking with Dr. Kimberly Noble, professor of neuroscience and education at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's a principal investigator on the baby's first year's study. We would like to hear from you. What questions do you have about this groundbreaking work? And how would you like to see the government approach policy regarding poverty reduction? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. A lot of things to think about with this study and how uh, poverty affects childhood development. You can get in touch with questions about those things on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're KQED Forum, or you can email your questions, comments, or your experiences of raising kids under very tough conditions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the baby's first year study, which shows that cash aid to low-income mothers increases the brain activity, a particular good kind, in their babies, and what it could mean for social policy going forward. We've been talking with Dr. Kimberly Noble, professor of neuroscience and education at Teachers College, Columbia University, who's a principal investigator on the study. And we'd like to add Dr. Tony Eiten, Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment. He's also a lecturer of health policy and management at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and the former director of the Alameda County Public Health Department. Welcome, Dr. Eiten. Nice to uh, talk with you again. Good talking to you, Alexis, and uh, really appreciate the great work that Dr. Noble and her colleagues are doing. You know, from a public health and public policy perspective, what are your thoughts on the early results from the study? Well, quite frankly, I mean, the results are 
very much expected. Many of us who've been sort of tracking this work recognize that um, essentially changes in the brain are one of the impacts of uh, adversity in early uh, childhood. And we also recognize that poverty is a, is a policy choice. Uh, Nelson Mandela said it, I think, best. He said, you know, poverty like slavery and apartheid uh, is man-made and can be made by the actions of human beings. So we make a choice to maintain in the United States 21% of children in poverty. And the question really is, why do we make this choice? Uh, studies like this show the consequences of that choice um, on our most vulnerable um, citizens. Yeah. I mean, your work over the years has really made the case that we can't disentangle biological outcomes from the socioeconomic conditions that people live under. And I wonder if you think that just cash aid like this, cash aid specifically, like giving people money to to alleviate the poverty conditions that they live in, do you think that's a big part of the answer for improving people's lives uh, long term? Yes, I do. Uh, and, and I think resoundingly so. One of the things we've discovered in doing the work that we've done in California is this idea um, that health is really tied to control, this notion of agency. And what I like about these um, unconditional uh, guaranteed income types of efforts is that they help confer a sense of agency or control on the recipients. People have the freedom to choose to use those resources in the way that they see um, most appropriate for their particular family or their circumstances. And just that limited amount of control confers um, a reduction in stress. And at the end of the day, it's really stress that drives um, many of the adverse outcomes, health outcomes uh, in poverty. And much of that stress is what we refer to as policy-mediated stress. In fact, it's, it's the stress caused by the absence of affirmative policy in the face of abject need. So giving people that kind of control and allowing them to exercise some agency in making these decisions is good for their health. Yeah. Let's bring in Alicia from Fairfield. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me on. I'm yeah. super encouraged about this research uh, because I, I know it firsthand. Um, my m single mother um, depended on cash aid and food assistance when I was a baby. And um, as a result, I became the, I believe that a lot of the support and the, the, um, the ability for her to have something to depend on uh, helped me become the first in the family to graduate college. And for me, though, then after my divorce, I had to uh, depend on cash aid and food stamps. And I had to figure out something for myself, but in the meantime, deal with the stress of the divorce and how to cope and manage. And everything that my mom had available to her, I had available to me, but more. And so um, I knew that my circumstances wouldn't last forever. And I got a chance to go back to school and complete my college degree. And that was part of the reason why I was able to graduate. My children, as a result, have been successful in school, doing very well, and successful in all other areas socially. Um, 
and then I started a childcare business and got a chance to work as a family resource center for a lot of the families that I was caring for. They were also on subsidized, you know, um, child care and all of that needed assistance as well. And so I know firsthand that this social contract is super important. It makes a world of difference. I have my own business now. I'm, I'm doing extremely well, although things happened a little later for me. But I know that if the availability of resources and help and assistance are made early on, it makes a world of difference. That's, yeah. So I'm encouraged to hear all of this. They're on the right track. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing your experience, Alicia. I mean, Dr. Wright, I mean, this country did used to have a fairly substantial uh, welfare program, as, as it was known, uh, cash aid to, to families. Um, and then we kind of went through a period of dismantling that under both Democratic and Republican administrations. Um, do we see that show up in the health data that people have to, to have that safety net for people kind of cut away? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a complicated picture. Um, but as you point out, you know, historically, this is really sort of the Clinton administration. Um, when we basically allowed states to take full control of some of the welfare programs, some of the key welfare programs, and many of the states dismantled them and uh, started to using, using those resources for a whole host of other um, sort of state purposes and needs. And I think fundamentally, it, it goes back to this notion of poverty as a policy choice, um, because it's tied to this narrative about policy, or about poverty, excuse me, which is deeply seated and it's highly racialized and it's false. And it's about poor people being undeserving. Mm-hmm. So as, as long as we continue to operate under that false narrative, we end up with policy that reflects um, that understanding. And that's the big challenge. And I think that some of this work is absolutely critical in changing the narrative, our understanding of what poverty is about. Um, you know, we just heard today that our state surgeon general in California, Nadine Burke-Harris, uh, has resigned from, from California's uh, government. And she's one of the lead architects in this idea of adverse childhood experiences and the impact, the lifelong impact of those childhood experiences and and how we need to translate our policy to take into consideration the science, like Dr. Noble's science, which reflects the criticality of those early years on development. So I do think that our policy has lost track of the science and needs to catch up with the science, but more importantly, quite frankly, is the narrative, our understanding of what poverty is and isn't. We're talking about the baby's first year study, which shows the cash aid to low-income mothers increases brain activity in their babies and what that could and should mean for social policy going forward. Joined by Dr. Tony Eiten, Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment, also a lecturer at UC Berkeley and former director of Alameda County Public Health, as well as one of the principal investigators of the baby's first year study, Dr. Kimberly Noble, professor of neuroscience and education at Teachers College, Columbia University. And we'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about the study and how would you like to see our government approach poverty 
reduction. You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email, of course, is forum at kqed.org. Let's bring in Ryan from Walnut Creek. Hi, guys. Uh, Thank you for having this very important uh, topic. Um, I studied college psychology and learning behavior in college as an undergrad, but so all of this is uh, ringing real true, and I'm really glad that you guys, the study's being done. My question is around the mothers. Um, a lot is known about the stress level of the family, you know, and, and that learned behavior and the learned environment. So I'm curious if, um, if, if and what the information says around the mother's brain activity or the mother's stress level in general, uh, if that's being studied or correlated as well. And then also, um, if you guys are tracking how the money is spent as well, I know unconditionally it's a totally different ballgame. It lets the family relax a little bit, but I'm just curious if there, any correlations are being drawn and how the money is being spent as well, and particularly the babies that have better brain activity. Thanks, guys. Good question, right? Uh, Dr. Noble? Questions. Thank you. Um, so uh, for your first question, we're not measuring the mother's brain activity directly, but we are measuring the mother's stress in quite a number of ways. Uh, so we are asking a number of questions about her stress and mental health. We're also uh, collecting a measure of stress hormone, um, both when the child is was one-year-old and uh, forthcoming when the child is around age four, so that we're hoping to be able to answer some of those questions. Um, we're also going to get a measure of uh, mother's, what we call executive function, which has to do with her ability to uh, inhibit impulses and uh, plan and sort of regulate her thoughts and feelings, um, which we'll be doing in a forthcoming wave of data collection as well. Um, your second question on how mothers are spending the money. Yes, we are tracking information on that in several different ways. So uh, the first way is asking them. So we ask them about uh, various types of expenditures, including child-focused expenditures, like spending money on things like books and toys or diapers or uh, clothes of food for the child. Um, we're also, among the mothers who have given us permission to do so, we're also tracking their transactions on the debit card by which the uh, cash gifts are dispersed. So mm-hmm. the moms received a debit card in the hospital that came uh, preloaded with the first month's gift and that automatically reloads every month on the day of the child's birthday. Um, she gets a text message to alert her when, as to when the funds have been uh, dispersed. And um, the majority of mothers are allowing us to track those transactions. Now, uh, we can see uh, where they spend the money and how much they spend, but we can't see the particular items they're buying in a store. So, for example, if they spend money at a Target, we don't know what they purchased, uh, but we can look at things like uh, different types of stores uh, or establishments where they're uh, using the, the debit cards. Got a uh, another listener question for you, Dr. Noble. Um, Dave writes, there are many studies showing that parenting workshops improve childhood development in lower income families. How might this study relate to those earlier findings? I'm so sorry. Could you repeat that? I, I didn't. Oh, oh yeah, sure. Whole... Yeah. Dave, uh, listener Dave uh, writes, there are many studies showing that parenting workshops improve childhood development in lower income families. How might this study relate to those earlier findings? Uh, it's a great question. So certainly we wouldn't mean to imply that um, cash is, you know, the one and only silver bullet. None of us think that um, it is 
highly likely, uh, near certain really, that there are other programs and interventions that likely uh, work together to support parenting and support children's development and growth. So, um, you know, things like parenting workshops or other kinds of parenting programs are no doubt also important. The beauty of cash is that uh, when it's administered in an unrestricted way, it really empowers families to use it as they see best for their family. And so maybe a parenting workshop would work for some families, but not others. And by giving them unrestricted economic resources, we're really empowering them to say, how do they need resources for their family. So it's you know quite possible that the cash operates differently in different families. Mm-hmm. Dr. Eiten, uh, listener uh, Moira writes, if we care about a low-income mother and can't afford it, are there any reasons not to give them $333 a month? I, I can't think of any. <laughs> <laughs> In, in fact, I you know I think that um, three hundred thirty-three dollars a month is is a relatively modest sum. As you know, as, as was said by Dr. Noble, it's you know four thousand dollars a year, and it equates to you know the equivalent of some of the benefits that we offer through our social policy. Uh, but quite frankly, it's it's not a lot of money in in, in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, with rent and the cost of living, it's it's even less valuable. Um, there are universal guaranteed income pilots happening all throughout the country, including in California and one in Oakland specifically, which is um, giving uh, families $500 a month, 600 families in Oakland, $500 a month, um, and um, tracking some of these outcomes as well. Now, not specifically um, families with uh, newborns, um, but families that are, are facing significant um, uh, crises with respect to poverty. So um, we do believe that um, agency, the ability to make decisions for yourself, to have the flexibility, to have resources that you can apply to the challenges that are facing you in your life is a critical uh, and important um, determinant of health. Uh, it's a stress reliever. And we also believe that um, we create stress in the lives of poor people through policy, or again, through the absence of policy in the face of abject need. Our failure to, to create policies around universal health care or universal preschool or living wage or paid sick leave, our mass incarceration policies, our housing policies, all of these create stressors in the lives of low-income uh, people and families. And those stressors have adverse impacts on their health and on their children's health. So we know this. So our, our policy failure is not acknowledging how we're creating stress and adversity and poor health in the lives of, of our poor families. So that's the real question for us is why do we make that policy choice or why do we fail to invest in policies that we know will benefit the health of low-income children and families, and in fact, all children and families? Yeah. Dr. Noble, you know, staying with Maura's question a little bit, a, a lot of the debate around cash aid to families, particularly over the last couple of years, has been around the sort of impact that it will have on the parent. You know, oh, well, they, they'll stop working if they get money and things like that, even though there's not a lot of evidence for that out there. But you'd like to reframe a bit of that discussion right. with this work, right? To, to talk about really, well, why are we talking about that when we could make a direct impact on, on their children? 
That's right. Um, so you're absolutely right that past evidence really does not suggest that uh, the families in their, our study are likely to squander these resources. Uh, you know, past research suggests that low-income families spend an economic windfall much the same way that higher-income families do. So while we get asked that question all the time, uh, there's really not an evidence in the literature to support the notion that um, the families are likely to squander the money. And so indeed, it's not surprising that we're not seeing evidence of that either. So uh, some work that we're doing suggests that we're not seeing any differences, for example, in spending on adult vices or substances. Um, now, uh, you know, as a neuroscientist and pediatrician, I can speak to the impact that we see on children's brain activity. But my colleagues on the study who are economists and policy experts tell me that the findings really also speak to how policies can potentially be a mechanism to support parents' investments in children. And so, you know, the findings that we're seeing uh, suggesting that they did in fact change uh, children's brain development early on really speaks to that potential. Yeah. Real quick before we go, what can we expect from this study going forward over the next couple of years? What are you going to measure and what, what kind of paper should we look for? Yeah, we've got quite a lot coming out in the pipeline. So um, uh, early evidence looking at things like uh, expenditures in the family, um, parent time use, you know, the amount of time parents report, for example, reading to their kids. Uh, also looking at things uh, like I just mentioned, expenditures on adult vices, which I know a lot of people care about. Um, and then I'm most excited about the next wave of data collection where we're going to once again be able to uh, interact with the families in person. So for the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, we've been limited to phone-based data collection. But um, in uh, the next year, we're going to be able to once again interact in person and really directly measure cognition and behavior. In we've been talking about the Baby's First Year study, which shows cash aid to low-income mothers increases brain activity in their babies with Dr. Kimberly Noble, Professor of Neuroscience and Education at Columbia, and Dr. Tony Eiton, Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Noble and Dr. Eiton. We'll be back with more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. 
Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.